I don't know about you, but I've been really challenged over the past few weeks as we've journeyed through the Sermon on the Mount. I feel like Jesus has been getting all up in my business and uh, he's coming for our heart. It matters, our hearts. And he's speaking directly to them to make sure that there's nothing in our hearts that would prevent us from loving him fully. He's calling us as the people of God to seek holiness in every area of our lives, to try to embrace the character of God as we know more about him and then to look more like him for the glory of his kingdom. Remember how Jesus challenged us as we began the Sermon on the Mount, we, we talked about Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And Jesus says to the disciples and those who are listening, you therefore must be perfect. You must be holy as your heavenly father is holy. You, as the, the children of God, must look like your heavenly father. It's a weighty statement that we as the people of God are, try, are called to be like God. But it makes sense if you think about it from a, a human perspective in the way that God has designed our relationships here. Don't children look like their parents? Don't sons look like their fathers? Oftentimes, I, I think about my kid. I got a five-year-old named Jude and if you know Jude and you know me, you know Jude is me. It's, it is shocking. It's shocking to watch your son who looks like you, speak like you, react to things the exact same way that you react, to begin to love things that you love, to have your parents, your mom and your dad say, it is unbelievable how much he is like you. And I'm grateful because now you get to experience what we experienced when you were growing up. It's, it's incredible. And it, it is, it's jaw-dropping to see the, this mirror image of yourself growing up in front of you. And the reality is this, when you meet Jude, you know a lot about me. That's the way it works. Typically, and the relationship between fathers and sons, parents and children. And if it is true, earthly speak, in, a, in an earthly speaking way, if it is true that my son is like me, how much more true should it be that we as the sons and daughters of a heavenly father should be like him? If we're spending time with him, if, if we're engaging in the things that he has called us to engage in, if we have been transformed by his radical love for us, how is it that we would not strive to be more like him? And here's the incredible news, guys. He has sent us his son to help us know how to be more like him. You see, in our own flesh and our own ability, we are imperfect sons and daughters. It's very hard and difficult for us to know how to be like our heavenly father. And yet God in his graciousness, God in his goodness, sent his, his perfect revelation of himself, his only son, to show us how to be like God, to grow in holiness. And not only that, to enable us 
to make provision to be like God when we could not have been like God before. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is calling us as his people to be holy, to think about every area of our lives and consider whether or not that area is testifying to God or distracting from God. Every area of our lives, do we look like the sons and daughters of the God of the Bible or do we look like something else? He's telling us the way that we live here as the people of God in the kingdom of God, it matters. Every part of your life should be affected by the love that you have for your father because how you live says something about him. How you live testifies to his character and his nature. That was certainly true of the life of Jesus as the perfect son. Is it true of us? The past couple of weeks, we've dealt with some sensitive topics. We've dealt with lust. We've dealt with divorce. And this morning, we're gonna finish chapter five by looking at three more areas in our lives that Jesus wants to pursue greater holiness within. Specifically as we treat our neighbors, how the love that we have for God is meant to translate into the love that we have for others. So let's see this morning from Matthew chapter five, verses 33 to 48, these other opportunities that we have to evidence set apartness and holiness as the people of God. These other three opportunities that we have to grow in likeness to our heavenly father who has saved us. Here's what the word of God says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, nothing more, for anything more than this comes from evil or the evil one. And you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, holy, as your heavenly father is perfect. You can see in this passage, 
three ways, again, that Jesus is challenging us to live in greater holiness as the people of God for the glory of God. To live as a set-apart people, a holy people. Jesus says we should be trustworthy in our speech. We should be surprisingly gracious in the midst of conflict. And we should be loving even when it is hard. Those things are true of God. They were true of his son and they must be true of us. Let's consider each one of these separately. Firstly, we should be trustworthy in our speech. Jesus addresses our speech by speaking about oaths in verses 33 to 37. He begins by summarizing a a number of different passages in the Old Testament that speak to oath-making and specifically making an oath with God's name attached to it. Exodus 20, verse seven, one of the 10 commandments says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So you gotta be very careful when you make a promise and you attach the Lord's name to it because how you treat that promise then reflects the way that you actually treat the name of the Lord. Apparently, in this time, it was very common for the people of God to use the name of God to to add extra weight to something they were saying. You kind of hear that today, right? I swear to God, this is what happened. This is what took place. And there's a, a danger here. In fact, At this time, some people begin to say that an oath was only binding if it had God's name attached to it because then you are saying, I'm willing to endure the wrath, the consequence that would come if I don't hold my my vow to you, but I'm also willing to endure the consequence and the wrath that would come from God and attaching his name to it. In fact, that became so much the practice of this time that there then began to be tears in promises. So that if you, if you were just kind of halfway serious about your promise, you could swear on something a little bit less in order to you know, show your commitment, but not be in danger of receiving the wrath of God for failing to abide by your word. Things like, I swear on the the grave of my mother or something like that, right? But in this particular case, Jesus offers us some. There are are different tiers of of promises that people would give, different um, commitments they would make. So not only I swear to God or I swear to his, his kingdom, his throne, I swear to the earth or I swear to Jerusalem or I, I swear on my head that I will do this. And Jesus challenges this practice. Because this practice creates two major issues, at least two, for the people of God. Firstly, the name of God himself potentially is called into question when you don't abide by your word and then nothing immediate of consequence is done to you, even though ultimately we know that we all will stand before the judgment of God. And then secondly, the, the general truthfulness of God's people is called into question. When we begin to marginalize truth or or strategize truth in a way that's to our advantage, Jesus says you can't do that as the people of God because your words matter in the kingdom of God. God has miraculously designed the kingdom of God to function in a way that is attached to our words. 
Isn't it incredible that we as the church have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are called to go to the ends of the earth and declare this is true. This is good. What God has done for you in Jesus Christ, I need you to see it because it will change not only your life here, but all of eternity. And God has designed that our words and our proclamation of the truth of God's word be used to further and build the kingdom of God. Because of that reason, friends, we as the people of God need to be truthful. Our words need to be trustworthy. We need to be honest. We need to be committed when we give our word, recognizing that our inability to be truthful, our inability to be faithful in one area of our speech can have a devastating effect on other areas of our speech, specifically our gospel speech that God uses to build his kingdom. We should not, as the people of God, have tears of seriousness when we promise something, having our our fingers crossed behind our back just to hedge our bets because everything ultimately belongs to the Lord. At some point, as God's people, whatever it is that we promise on and whatever it is that we promise is attached to God. Number one, he's got his name on us. Number two, he's got his name on everything else. You promise to God in heaven. Guess what? Heaven is here, is his. Okay, let me lessen that a little bit. I'll promise on the earth. Well, guess what? Who created the earth and owns everything in it? God. Okay, I'll promise on my head. Who created your head? Who owns you? God. At some level, God's attached to all of this. You cannot escape him. You cannot escape the consequence of your sinfulness when you say something and you don't do it or when you lie. Ultimately, you will be judged for that. So don't don't have a flawed view of truthfulness. Don't have a flawed view of your speech. Recognize the importance of what you say and how God will use that to further his kingdom. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Speak in such a way that when people hear you, they have confidence in what you say and in the little things of life so that when you speak about the big things of life, it carries a weight that people can't ignore because they know you to be trustworthy. Hear me, God is serious about his promises and he is always faithful to them. We as his people must be serious about our promises and we must be faithful to them because of how we reflect the character and nature of God. Do you realize as a Christian, when you say something and you promise something and you don't hold true to it, that has an opportunity to to make God look bad and to call into question his truthfulness. Now, certainly it could be overcome, but we don't wanna be roadblocks to the gospel. We want to be advocates for the gospel. Christians, we need to take our words seriously. How we speak matters because our speech is meant to be a reflection of God's speech. Let's speak the truth. Let's be edifying with our speech. Let's be faithful to what we promise. Let's resist things like deceit, flattery, lying, manipulation. Let's follow the command of Ephesians chapter four, verse 29. Let's let no corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but only that kind of talk that is useful for for building up and for giving grace. Let's commit to speak in such a way that the people of God 
and others within our sphere of influence have confidence in our words and what we testify to. And friends, I can't think of a a better challenge for us in the year 2020 because do y'all know there's a lot of crazy stuff being talked about in our world today? Conspiracy theories are everywhere about everything. And I'll admit, honestly, it's really hard to know sometimes what is true and what is not true. But what is troubling to me is that there are a lot of Christians who are promoting things which are verifiably false, that are clearly not true. And they're posting things on their their Facebooks and their Twitters and their their blogs. They're, They're advocating these conspiracy theories as if they are true. And here's the problem. When those posts are put right alongside posts about God, about Jesus, his gospel, the truthfulness of the Bible, they begin to be equated. And so here's what people think. Well, if, if Joe or Sally or Jared is able to be deceived in that way, then maybe they've been deceived by this. If they believe that's true, and it's clearly not true, then why should I trust them when they say this is true? Maybe it's not true. Do you see the danger there for the kingdom? Do you see how we need to be careful about what we say and what we assert? I'm not saying there's not a place for opinion. I just wanna be careful that we only say with confidence when something is true because the gospel is on the line. Friends, Philippians chapter four, verse five, we're challenged to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. So let's make sure that when we go out on a limb for something, it's for the sake of the gospel and that people can look at us in our words and they could see the reasonableness of what we affirm. And they know when we say something, we really believe it's true. They know when we say something, it's something that can be trusted. Because then that gives credence to those moments when we are under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit being used to advance the gospel with our speech. The way that we speak, the way we make promises, it matters in the kingdom of God. And secondly, we should be surprisingly gracious in the midst of conflict. See that in verses 38 to 42. Jesus turns the corner a bit here in this section, turning to our reaction in the midst of difficult situations. Yes, let your speech be trustworthy, but then let your actions in the midst of conflict be surprisingly gracious. And Jesus is challenging us here as his people about the concept of justice. Where do we look for justice? ultimate justice? Where do we look for things to be made right? Where do we look to get what we think we deserve? Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now the initial meaning of Jesus's quote had become exaggerated. 
The initial meaning is set out in the Old Testament. Again, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21, where these words are written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the, the initial meaning, or the, the initial uh, importance of this was protection. So that if you offend your brother or you do something where they, they lose something, that they have the protection of getting back what they've lost, but you also have the protection of not losing more than you need to and making retribution. It was, it was a legal precedent to guard and protect both parties involved in a dispute. But once again, human sinfulness had exaggerated has exaggerated the meaning of what God intended. Something meant to guard against revenge and the promotion of injustice has now become an excuse for revenge so that people weren't looking to the courts and legal authorities to help govern their response. They were looking for street justice. I'm entitled to this. I I deserve this and I'm gonna take it regardless of the cost. And this is especially true of God's people at this time who felt uniquely oppressed under Roman government rule. And they felt they weren't being provided the opportunity for justice. And so they would take it however they could get it, as we see in some of the examples that Jesus gives in this section. Listen to some of the ways Jesus specifically speaks to some of the injustices that they were experiencing under Roman rule. What if, this is like verse 39, what if a Roman citizen or a soldier strikes you on the cheek and they shame you? What do you deserve in that moment? Should you have the right to strike them back? Jesus says, don't do that. Instead, Turn to them the other cheek. What? What if someone sues you for your tunic? And remember, this time, uh, they didn't have walk-in closets to go around and look at clothes they hadn't worn in three years, right? Pretty much probably what they had was on their back, a tunic and a cloak. And so what happens if somebody comes after you and they're, they're going after your tunic? Well, Jesus says, give them your cloak as well. Give them the shirt off your back. What if a Roman official comes to you and enlists you to help him with official government business, that you've got to walk alongside him and and help him give out this decree that's been given to him by the Roman government for a mile? Well, don't just go a mile because you're required to. Go an extra mile, Jesus says. What if someone comes and asks you for help to give you some to give them some money that they didn't earn, they didn't work for? What if they come and ask you for a loan? What do you do? Jesus says, don't refuse them. What is he saying here? Here's the bottom line. The people of God should not act based on entitlement. We don't have to demand our earthly rights because we trust in a greater system of justice. And in not demanding what you think you deserve here, you actually in that moment become a light for the gospel. Think about it. What if we as the people of God were to say, I want to get what I deserve. 
I deserve this, so I'm taking it. Well, think about that from a biblical perspective for a second. What is it that you actually deserve? Right? What do you deserve eternally? Think about the testimony of scripture. None of us will ever be offended to the level that we've offended God. We've slapped him in the face. We've abused the things that he has given to us. We've done just the bare minimal in the hope that we'll please him. And when he's been generous to us, we've been stingy with him. How many evidences of offense do we have in our lives against God? And because of that, here's what we deserve. We deserve an eternity separated from God and a sinner's hell. That's what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the judgment of God. We deserve the punishment of God. But how is it that God has acted toward us? He did not give us what we deserve, friends. He has been surprisingly gracious to us. He has given us what we did not deserve. And what's more, he, he put what we did deserve on his son. That is surprisingly gracious. And in those moments when we don't claim what we deserve, we have an opportunity to be strengthened in our own resolve about the goodness of the gospel, but also to speak to those people about why. Why it is that we're willing to give up some of these rights here as a testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Jared, does that mean that we need to be doormats and just be walked over? I, listen, guys, I understand this is a difficult conversation to have, especially in the context that we live in. Should we never strive for justice here? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take advantage fully of the governments that God has established and seek to undo as much as we can the effects of sinfulness and the effects of the fall for the common good. Certainly we should do that. But here's what I'm also saying. We should not have our hope so situated on earthly justice that we lose sight of the greater teaching of the Bible. That true ultimate justice will only come when King Jesus returns and he judges all people, the whole of the earth, and he establishes peace once and for all. Let's not look to the earth what only Jesus can give. We've got to make sure that our hope is situated rightly. And secondly, let's make sure that amongst the people of God, we are walking as justly and as mercifully and as graciously as possible. We can expect the world around us to live in accordance with God's design, but it surely should be true of the people of God. We surely should be living graciously and at peace with one another, recognizing the surprising grace that we have benefited from, from God. Here's a quote from a guy named Donald Hagner. It is the unworthy who have experienced the good things of the kingdom and as they have experienced the surprise of the unexpected grace of God, so they act in a similar manner toward the undeserving among them. Jared, here's what they deserve, maybe, but what did you deserve? You were undeserving and, they, and yet God acted so graciously toward you. 
What if we, as the people of God, acted graciously toward others? What a testimony to the kingdom that would be. And finally, Jesus says, we should be loving even when it is hard. And verses 43 to 48, we should grow in our pursuit of, of a perfect love, the kind of love that God has for us. So Jesus here is even taking his challenge to the people of God to a different level. Not only should we be compassionate in the midst of conflict, showing surprising grace, we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you, according to verse 44, because when we do this, we are sons of God and daughters of God. There's never a time you will be more like God than when you are loving your enemies and praying for them. What a challenging statement. The people of God should be characterized by supernatural love. Yes, for one another. Absolutely, we should love one another, but we should also love those who are unlovable because that is the heart of the gospel. Christ's opening statement in, in verse 43 is pretty interesting if you wanna look there again with me. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus is quoting here a common misconception among the people of God at this time. Because you see that the Bible never commands you to hate your enemy. Rather, the Bible always, always promotes reconciliation and peace. Why? Because God understands the true nature of the conflict that we live in. And as a people of God, we should also understand the true nature of all conflict. Here is the reality. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine. God desires every single person that has ever been created to be reconciled to him in salvation. Every person was created in the image of God and God desires all of them to be saved. Every single person has worth. Every single person is worthy of love and respect. But we also understand Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, that there is conflict, but it's not with flesh and blood. We wrestle with powers and principalities. People are not the enemy, but the enemy does use people. And that should lead us, that realization, that truth should lead us to have a heart of compassion. Because in those moments of conflict, those moments when we, we see people outside of the covenant of God being used by the enemy, we should, our hearts should break for them. Because God heart, God's heart breaks for them. And even amongst the church, even amongst the people of God, occasionally, we will let the enemy have a foothold in our lives to the point where we're bringing divisiveness. That should break our hearts, friends, because we understand what really is going on. We should be compassionate. We should have supernatural love because that is true of God. Here's how I know. Romans chapter five. Let me read for you verses six through 11 of Romans chapter five. For while we... We're still weak. Talking about the church. At the right time, Christ died for the who? The godly? No. For the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Do you realize how God has loved you? You were an enemy of God, an enemy. Before Jesus Christ, you were fundamentally at odds with the God of the universe. And yes, you deserve judgment and wrath, but God so loved you. Hear me this morning. God so loved you that he allowed you to be transitioned from an enemy to a child. And here's what's more. He did that. He allowed for that to happen by sacrificing the one that he loved above all other things, the son, Jesus Christ. Think about the rat. I would never do that. I would never. I love you guys. I would never sacrifice my son for you. I, would, I, couldn't, I could not do it. It's just not, it's not in me to do that. And yet that is what God has done for you. See the love of God for you today, church family, a love that you did not deserve. You were unequivocally unlovable. And yet God demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were still sinners, an enemy of God, Christ died for you. Praise the Lord. If it is true of God that he is unconditionally loving, if he is, it's true of God that he is loving even when it's hard, and if it's true of the son who is the perfect representation of what it means to be a son, then it also must be true of us. And recognize, friends, this kind of love is not natural. Here's what's natural to love those who love you and hate those who hate you. That's what Jesus says here. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's completely natural. Even tax collectors, people that are hated a lot in this time, even tax collectors love those who love them. Even your Gentile brothers love their brothers. Those outside the covenant, that's how they act. But you are in the covenant. You are in the kingdom. You know God. You gotta be different. You gotta be different. God, here's how good God is. He makes the sun to rise on evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Are you like God? Or do you only have natural love in you? Not supernatural love that comes from Jesus. Here's the deal, church family. This stuff matters. How we live as the people of God, it matters. How we live as the children of our heavenly father, it matters. How we speak, how we act. We are living testimonies to Christ. 
We are living testimonies to our heavenly father. We are meant to show the world what the kingdom of heaven under the rule and reign of Jesus, under the favor of a good father is like. What are we showing people? What are you showing people with your speech? What are you showing people with your actions in the midst of conflict? Who do you love willingly? What are we showing people as a church collectively? When they come and they see us together, are they seeing edifying, good, uplifting speech? Are they seeing a, a people who are uncompromisingly gracious toward one another? Are they, are they seeing a people who express supernatural love or are they seeing something else? But Jared, we're all hypocrites. Yes, that's true. That's not an excuse though for us to quit pursuing holiness and righteousness. And they should see us repentant when we do mess up, relying on the very same grace that we are promoting to carry us forward. We should be different. Let's not be a stumbling block, friends. Let's be the aroma of Christ. Let's be salt and light. Let's be faithful children to a good and heavenly father. And remember, you cannot do this on your own. This kind of holiness, this kind of righteousness that we see unfolding in the Sermon on the Mount it can't be worked in from the, the outside in. It has to come from a supernatural heart change through the work of Jesus. But our example provided the means for us to look more like Jesus and be used by him to build his kingdom. How should we respond this morning? How should we respond to the, the teaching of God's word? Firstly, do you know Jesus? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been transitioned from an enemy of God to a child of God by repentance and belief in Jesus? If you've not, then I would love for you today to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved from the wrath of God. That's what you deserve. But Jesus took that on himself so that you could be spared from it. Would you take advantage of that sacrifice today? For the rest of us who are in Christ, who are in the kingdom, how's your speech? Is it trustworthy? Is it faithful? Is it advantageous to the gospel? Or are you promoting things and saying things that are a stumbling block that God will have to overcome to bring people to faith in him? Are you gracious, surprisingly gracious in the midst of conflict? If not, be careful. Because in those moments where you're acting upon what you think you deserve, you may be losing a little bit of what you actually deserve. Let's be surprisingly gracious. Again, not denying the proper pursuit of justice here, but also not situating our hope wrongly. Finally, are you actively loving and praying for all people 
even people who you disagree with politically, even people who vote differently on Tuesday, do you love them? Are you praying for them? Certainly inside the church, but even outside the church. Because hear me, God loves them and wants to see everyone know him and move from an enemy status to a child status. Here's the truth, guys. It's been said before, you may be the only Jesus someone sees. Or you may be the the introduction that God uses to bring someone to himself. When they look at your life, when they look at your social media, is it advantageous to the gospel or does it hurt it? Let's be faithful children to a good heavenly father. Amen. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time asking the, the Lord to help you know how to respond this morning. The preaching of God's word. Are you a child of God or an enemy of God? Let's get that right today. If you're a child of God, do you look like it? Your speech, your response in the midst of conflict, the love that you have for one another, are they all supernatural or natural? Are they advantageous to the gospel? When, when someone knows you, do they get to know a little bit more about their father in heaven? Do they get to know a little bit more about his son? May that be our pursuit as we seek to be holy as he is holy, as we seek to be like God in the power of his spirit, not in the power of our flesh. Father, would you help us do what we cannot do? Would you help us be holy as you are holy, perfect as you are perfect? Would you fan in us a heart that loves you and desires to be like you? so that others around us may see more of who you are, your goodness, your graciousness, your love, for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand. Let's sing together, church.